ladies and gentlemen, transmitting direct from Lion's Den Studios in Los Angeles, California, Crew Studios and Danube Productions bring you The Conduit, bringing together motivated artists to share their experience and to pull back the curtain for a first-hand look at a life in the arts. In this episode, our guest is MC and entrepreneur Booty Brown from the far side, the gorillas, and much more. So adjust your antenna, relax, and tune in. Your program is about to begin. All right, hey everyone, I'm Dan Ubik. Welcome to the first episode of The Conduit, where I sit down and talk to amazing, courageous people about making a living in the arts. Today, my guest is world-renowned West Coast rapper Booty Brown from the Far Side and Gorillaz fame. Brown came up first as a dancer under the tutelage of the legendary Tony Basil and was featured in videos by Tone Loke, Candyman, and others. He studied music in the music biz under Rick James, Daz Band producer Reggie Andrews at Reggie's SCU program at Locke High School and then became a household name in the early 90s with influential hip-hop group The Far Side on top of beats by fame producers Jay Swift and ultimately Detroit's Jay Dilla, RIP. In 2004, producer Danger Mouse brought Brown into the fold with Damon Albarn's Gorillaz for the song Dirty Harry on the band's mega hit record, Demon Days, where he worked alongside luminaries like Ike Turner, Bobby Womack, Oasis, Lou Reed, Paul Simonon and Mick Jones from The Clash, De La Soul, Nina Cherry, and Nigerian drum guru, Tony Allen. With Gorillaz, Brown has rocked huge crowds all around the globe, from the O2 Arena in London and Glastonbury to headlining California's Coachella. In addition to his accomplishments, though, Brown is also just really good people and has much insight into how he's made music his career. So sit back, relax, and have a listen to my conversation with the one they call Booty Brown. Brown, uh, it's my honor to have you as my first guest here on The Conduit, man. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs> number one with the purse. <laughs> yes, sir. You're number one. So yeah, I just uh, I want to start with this. Uh, this this podcast is really you know, as much as it's for me, it's it's mostly for the listeners and people trying to get into this crazy lifestyle we call the music business. And um, I guess I want to just start with you and how you started, how you grew up, where you grew up. Do you have brothers and sisters? What did mom and dad do? Talk about your growing up, man. I want to just hear about that and how that influenced you. Um. Well. No brothers, no sisters, only child. Uh, Mom's a nurse. Father was, I guess, handyman, carpenter type person. Oh, nice. Um, Same with my dad. Yeah, like, you know, so my first job, my first job was actually working with my father. He's a roofer, so we would do roofing and a lot of different, you know, stuff like that. Right. Um, I would say that uh, mom... Mom is Motown. Okay. Dad is uh, Hippie, Jimi Hendrix, uh, okay. Crosby, Stiller, Nash, Jethro yeah. Tull, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. So it was always a it was always a mixture of, of kind of music in the house, you know. Sure. Um, I think uh, first influences as far as just music um, was more or less like parties being at the house when my mom and like the family would be over and right so 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 yeah so so basically i i look at it that um i think 
for me, just like I said, with the family, that was like the time that I could always play. I don't know. My dad was the the kind of don't touch my record player. You know what I'm saying? I had that. I had that. That. I mean, I can understand. He had nice records and he had the record player. But when the family came over, was the times that I could always play the music and and ah, he would nice. just so they while they were playing cards and dominoes and stuff like that. Yeah. They'd be like, oh, go, go play, go play some music, you know? Uh, yeah. So I think that gave me a chance to kind of monitor almost, I, I, I don't consider myself a DJ, but I could see. You could see the reactions. Yeah. Yeah. Like at certain times, like, you know, like, like, okay. Like earlier in the daytime or something like that, you playing some Stevie Wonder, you playing more you know, happy type family music, stuff like that. Yep. Then, you know, after a couple of drinks or something, they playing dominoes to get a little, things get a little serious. Yep. Then it's like, okay, <laughs> it's time to play like Miles Davis or something like that, you know, deep <laughs> concentration mu music. Right, right. And then, you know, while we're eating, then, uh, okay, we're going to go into the reggae time, you know, like something where everybody could just be a little joyous, you know? So sure. it was it was like you can kind of balance out the music. And so I think that helped me along the way of kind of understanding the the moods to to the setting, right. I guess. Right, the power that has, you, you yeah. controlling the setting, yeah. Yeah. That's, inc that's incredible. Yeah, I feel like a lot of... A lot of musicians are that way. You kind of see how it affects people. You're always watching. There's DJs as well, but you're always watching to see how, how the mood affects and how you can lift the mood if something's going on. So Yeah. So yeah. like when it got serious, like 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 I said, like when it got serious during Domino time, like you played Miles Davis and you could just <laughs> see the you could see the brains like like going off of the head, you know what I'm saying? And then like <laughs> You know, when when it got a little too serious, like, okay, let, let's play some Horace Silver or something like that, songs oh, for my nice. father or something. You know what I'm saying? Something right. that's a little little lighter, not as heavy as Miles, you know? So, sure. Yeah. Literally a song for your father. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man, that's cool. I wish my dad took better care of his records because when he passed, I got them all, but they were all scratched up from our parties where people were just throwing them on and scratching them up. So no, wow. that's no, cool. I, Your dad took good care of them. <laughs> yeah. My father just recently passed. So I wind up getting, oh, I, I wind up getting his record collection, which I was like, you know, hate to see him go, but yay records. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure he loves that you have them and are playing them still, man. That's beautiful. Yeah, for sure. What a beautiful way to grow up with parties and music in the house. It was kind of similar similar at my house, too. I loved, loved that. That's like some of my favorite memories. So moving into like grade school, you're meeting kids and all, getting all kinds of music, I'm sure, just like I was. What were the first kind of like professional groups that you were hearing on the radio or on people's turntables that made you kind of go, this might be something I, you know, I think I could do or something that's like, that seems interesting to me. I don't think, you know what, to be honest, like I always tell people like music, I never, I never um, thought like the music industry wasn't something that was initially like my first draw to. Uh -huh. Um, I, when I was in, I say like we, st I stayed in LA at first. So while we were in LA, it was a lot of Zap, a lot of Parliament, 
I mean, just yeah. the neighborhoods, that was just, you know, the 70s, that 70s funk sound, you know, that was just sure. like heavy in LA. Sure. But then when I moved to Pasadena, because of like KRQ and the Swedish Eagle, I mean, yep. it was all new wave up here and punk rock. Sure. You know what yep. I'm saying? Yep. So when I came to Pasadena, it was like Duran Duran and and, <laughs> yep. and that kind of stuff, which I love. Like, I still love new wave to this day. Like, I love, same, I, same. I, I, I feel like new wave was like some of the best songwriting, like, like for sure, all types of stuff. So, yeah, so it was different, but I never, I, I can honestly say I never really felt like, um, I actually wanted to be an architect, so I never was okay. really concentrating on uh, music. I never saw that in my future. Got you, got mm. you. I don't know what year I was reading. Uh, Reggie Andrews was a teacher at one of the schools you came up at. And what what year was that? Was that junior high, high school? What was that? No, so I would say, because we're all, Imani being the youngest, Fat Lip being the oldest. Yeah. So our age range was from like, 22 to 19 probably yeah so we all were pretty much out of school gotcha. we met reggie it was kind of like basically what he had was an after school program now jay oh. swift was young and still going to uh to lock high at that time and so okay, gotcha. jay swift was kind of like reggie's poster child as far as for the whole music stuff and right, so right. we would just go to lock because that's where reggie would teach like he would have people come down that was I think like Mary Wells and people would come down and Dang. we and, and then we would kind of learn how to have breath control and um oh man oh, what's he worked name? on that stuff with you guys. Dang. Yes. Yeah, awesome. So like Sarita uh yeah. who sung with uh she did a lot of stuff with Stevie Wonder. So she would right. tell us like don't eat a lot of cheese and you know okay. if you if if you're going to smoke don't smoke before recordings and they gave us a lot of that kind of stuff you know and and like just knowledgeable things that like a lot of people just don't get that kind of stuff and told to them a lot you kind of yeah. got to find that find the hard way or you learn while you're on the road but yeah so yeah. Reggie had like a after school program where A&M had basically gave him a lot of uh, music equipment because he wanted to have yeah. an after school program. At that time, I think the schools were shifting where they were losing the the music uh, programs yeah, yeah. at school. And so Reggie, he had an after school thing at his house. He had a duplex complex. And so like one of the duplexes had like a studio that was inside. He lived in another place. And, oh, okay. and so Jay Swift and his sister and brother stayed in a whole nother uh, duplex. So just Dang, it, and this was all funded by Herb Albert. Uh, well, Herb Albert basically gave the equipment that, Dang. and so yeah, so it was just a lot of different uh, things that was in there that you know I wasn't used to seeing. You know, like what is sure. this? What is that? You know, what is right? You know, yeah. So it was like the, you know, like eight track recorders and the oh, the, yeah. the the samplers and stuff like that. I was like, what does this do? You know. So, it was, so it he was not only showing you recording techniques and instruments, but actually having people come in and give you guys tips and all that too. Yeah, so basically it was called SCU. And so- What did, what did SCU stand for? What, what was the uh, South Central Unit. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. So there was like, uh, there was a girl singer group, there was a guy singer group, there was a, there was a uh, different musicians like I know uh, 
Eric Bobo was was part of a group that was there. Okay. So so it was a, it was it was like six different kind of groups that would come and we would just listen to Reggie and he would just talk about management, music. He would just t- it would just be a lot of just a lot about a lot of different things and we would just sit there, you know, he would just talk about his experience in songwriting and stuff like that. Man, what a beautiful dude to do that. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so I know dancing plays a huge part in your guys' history too. For sure. History. And uh, it's so interesting to me, we, we kind of take these things for granted when, you know, of how we came up and were offered opportunities, but I'd love for you to lay out kind of what it was like deciding you love dancing, how you worked and worked up routines with, with people you danced with, and what it took to kind of get yourself ready for being asked to be in videos by Tone Loke and Candyman and all these people that I've heard you, you know, you were a part of. What, like, how did that manifest itself? How did you prepare yourself for that? So dancing was kind of a thing that was in high school because basically um, there used to be, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, used to be like these things called Uncle Jam's Army, used to do like these little things. So. they used to perform at like the skate, like skate land here in the valley and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I know skate land. Exactly. So yeah. when I was in high school, basically I used to be like a pro, I guess like a promoter for something for like high school kids. So, oh, okay. so the guy would kind of pick us up and we would just hop the fences to different schools. So we would go to Taft and all the schools in the valley just hop the fence because nobody knew if we were a student there or not and right. so we so we would just go and then like they would do the lunchtime dances and so like kind of go and start the whole dance off like get the whole kind of lunchtime dance party started and so sure. and so that helped me just meet a lot of different people from different schools different dance crews and stuff like that right. and then later on you meet you meet you know either that weekend or you meet that night and you you know, either have your battles or whatever it was, you know what I'm saying? So as time progressed, like, you know, the dance crews, you just kind of stuck with the dance crew kind of thing. And, um, and so that eventually led to freestyle dancing. Um, and you know, it was just people, I just think at that time, like there was a lot of videos and people wanted dancing in the videos a lot more, more than, yeah, I guess more than now because you don't you see dancing, but it's mostly like TikTok kind of stuff now, you know. Right, right. But at this time, it was like, you know, everybody who pretty much wanted a video always had some kind of dance routine, whether it was Janet Jackson, whether it was Guy, right. whether it was you know. So, yep. uh, Tony Basil was like very influential in in getting us gigs I mean man I couldn't say like Tony like Tony was it like she was the one that you know and at that time she would do a lot of choreography for uh, Bette Midler and Barbara Streisand so it was just like you know it was just weird how she was she was really on like Broadway kind of side but then at the same time she would do like the street level like you know, Boogaloo Shrimp, and she was down with, like, the break-in and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, Tony Basil was definitely the person that kind of let, kind of ushered in. And she also was, she was, yeah, I I, I feel like I've just been fortunate because she was also like Reggie. Like, Tony Basil, you go to her house, and she would just have, like, all these VHS tapes, 
and you sit yeah. there and study like the Nicholas Brothers and you st- study like just all these different dancers and people like you just watch these old movies and she'd be like see that there and you you know this is right. this is where this move come from you know so yeah. and she would give you history so it's like That's awesome. I was very fortunate to just kind of meet Tony Basil along the way God bless people like that who are just so self-motivated that they get so much shit to happen. It's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> Through their own love of it, just pulling people in that love it too and making all kinds of things happen. It's impressive. Yeah. Because uh, I think the last time, the, my last dealings with Tony was actually, uh, she was like, oh, Janet's about to go out. So it's like, and so I was like, oh, wow, we get to try to, we tried out for what is that club? The Prince's Club in downtown. I can't. Uh, Grand Slam. So like, uh, oh, so right. so Janet came to uh, Grand Slam to kind of see what where we were. Like like I I want to just see them in the in the in the natural element or whatever. And it was cool. Uh-huh. You know, we met Janet. She was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm about to go on tour, and I you know I just really want you know some some real urban kind of stuff, whatever. But I never yeah. by that time I was in that transition of like dancing into 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 the whole music career kind of thing right right surround yourself with people who love the same thing you do and good stuff's bound to happen yeah for sure i mean you try you know what i'm saying i mean i, I whether it's good or bad it's always a learning experience <laughs> <laughs> that's true too that is true too um well, so um, skipping away from dance here, when did you first start practicing and writing rhymes on your own just before you kind of started the group? What got you interested in that? What inspired you to kind of get into that thing? Uh, so basically at that time, I kind of was dating this girl and there was, I think, I can't think of the album, but Michael Jackson was doing his uh, videos kind of stuff. So. Yeah. The video he was doing was Remember the Time. So, okay. yeah, I tried out for an audition. And at that time, I was like a dance teacher. So, like, I was teaching, like, hip-hop class, whatever. And yeah. and so, like, you know, there was a lot of different people that was coming to our class. Like, New Edition to come in and Tisha Campbell from Martin and Mario oh, yeah. and all these people would come in and take the class. So, yeah. when it came down to the auditions, I was like, oh, man, this is going to be easy. Like, you know but uh it just didn't work out <laughs> i didn't okay. i didn't make the audition because okay. being the the uh basically the girl who was heading the audition kind of we kind of had a falling out and okay. so i just got into this frame of mind i was like man this is just this 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 whole dancing thing has got a little too political for me and i was just like man i'm gonna i'm gonna start doing music i'm gonna start you know like man this is the time for me to just kind of I felt like I kind of reached the pinnacle. I was like, if I didn't make it to Michael Jackson, I don't know what else I'm going to kind of try to do right. so. So we met Jay Swift. Oh, well, I met Fat Lip first because Fat Lip was like, he needed some dancers for his, uh, he was having a talent show. And at that time he was Jammer D. So he's like, oh man, you guys are like the, the top dancers, man. Can you guys come? It was me and this guy named Robert. So he was like, it would be great if you guys could come and, dance for me at my talent show or whatever. So he's like, okay, cool, you know? So we met Fat Lip. And then it just happened that we met Jay Swift sometime after that. 
But the weird thing was Jay Swift had also was talking to Fat Lip at at kind of like the same time. But it, the two wasn't together. Like so, like he had met Fat Lip and then he had met us, and then oh. we all wind up in this place at SCU together because oh, yeah. Jay Swift was you know he had basically kind of pieced up people that he wanted to work with, and so okay. we just all like oh shit like. What's up, you know, so our first, the first group consisted of me, uh, it was Imani, Trey, myself, and this guy named Robert, and we were calling, at that time, we were going by two for two, so, uh, and it was more like, we had a song called We Wanna Party, it was more like really upbeat, (laughs) happy kind of stuff, you know, like it wasn't, uh, because dancing, you know, being with Candy and being with Tone Loke, it was always more college happy fun sure. kind of stuff nothing nothing really deep like that yeah so you guys just ended it was a kind of jay swift put you guys together at the beginning yeah he just basically brought us he was like hey man you know have you guys ever thought about rapping and at that time like i said like he just came at that time that my mind was kind of transitioning like okay i've kind of i kind of feel like i've done what i can do with dancing yeah. and so um so we stayed there and then Robert he's Robert was just like man I he loved dancing so much he was like oh man I you know rapping's not really necessarily for me so yeah. he went he went to go tour with Janet and okay. when he went to go tour with Janet that's when it you know Fat Lip was always hanging with us or whatever so he's like man you hang with us all the time like you know you might as well just we you might as well just be in the group with us and so that's where like he kind of came into the fold. So that was the beginning though? Like you guys had never like done demos on your own or like written verses and like gotten stuff together already. It was just like, you guys want to try rapping and then you just kind of jumped into it. Yeah, exactly. That's, That's crazy. Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah. So. It was and me. then what, how did you, how did you navigate that? Like, how did you, what was your kind of, I mean, you'd obviously been listening a ton, but how did you first go about like writing rhymes? Like, how did you, did you have a template or what you, no, guys I, you loved or what'd you do? No, I think, I think, I think by, I think what it was that we had been, since we had been going out with like Tone Loke and Candyman and that stuff and yeah. doing all those things, it kind of came into our mind like, you know what? If we can dance and we can actually almost do what they could like rap at the same time, like yeah. we we felt like we had it like like oh we're gonna we're gonna kill it like because like we could do what they can do and we can still do you know like we're their background dancers so it's like if we can combine the two, right? And at that time, I want to say I think Hammer was out, so yeah. like that was like our our test like okay if you could. If you could dance this twelve minute uh <laughs> hammer song and rap at the same time, like that's gonna be your win, that's gonna be everything. Not saying Ooh. that Hammer was the best rhymer or right. rapper all time, but right. we understood the energy that it took for him to go on stage and dance and just rap that whole time. So that was like that was like we, we used to have the thing called the hammer test. So it was like if you could Dang, come and, yeah. and dance for 12 minutes and rap at the same time, then it was like, okay, you can, you can kind of do something. You can get your wind up to a level. That's, that's it, man. I try singing when I'm jogging sometimes. It's hard as can be, dude. It's like, 
Yeah, I'm like, I think of people like Mick Jagger or people who are really getting into their performance on stage and singing at the same time. It is not easy, man. You got to work up to that. It's crazy. Yeah, I think when, when you say people like, I think really what it is, you learn breath control, you know, like, yeah. like, it's, it's, and that's something like you just learn that. Like, and then by, yeah. I, I mean, it's like you said, Mick Jagger, like you see that kind of like a person that's been doing it for that long. And you're just like, yeah. how can he still do it? How can they, how can they still just go out there and, and just do that? But it's just like, right. I think they, it's a meditative trance yeah. kind of state that they go in and they just, they just know how to harness that energy to make that work. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild, man. It's wild. Well, so you guys are in a room, you've gotten together with Jay Swift. It's the four of you guys. And just for people getting into this again, how do you start booking gigs? What are your first gigs? Backyard parties? Kind of like, what are you guys doing to perform and get your performing legs on? Most of it was like, yeah, like, like you said, backyard gigs. Uh, I Imani's mom at that time, she used to do like these, uh, beauty pageants so we would oh, cool. do like the the hood beauty pageant and, and oh, go beautiful. out there and and do that and then it was yeah. like you know there was like public access cable network kind of stuff that we would do yep. those kind of things <laughs> yeah so we would do a lot of that kind of stuff and then really like we were doing a lot of showcases and at that time i would okay. say like a lot of the showcases are like they would just be like at a rehearsal studio be like oh there's a showcase we got to go do today to perform to go see you know so somebody i think i remember doing i think like john mcclain john mcclain uh was like one of the person that would always be around at these showcases i remember just hearing yeah. seeing him around a, a lot so yeah we would uh -huh. just do the backyard stuff wherever we could like it was just just like wherever we could do it you know right and figuring out what works and what doesn't and all that dang and then you remember what your first big show was like man you're that's... doing lots of showcases but what was like the one where it's like oh shit we're opening for so and so or whatever it is wow that's a that's an excellent question i can't even i can't even say what was the first big show um i know we had like showcases because like I said, it was SCU, so we there were singing groups, there was music, there was yeah. you know all different. So I, I can't say what our first big show is. That's, yeah, that. But that I, I that's dope. Play. So Reggie also put together like shows that you guys would all perform. Yeah, at too. so we would do because Ooh. because you know there were singing groups. So like Jay Swift's sister is a uh, uh, uh -huh. Mercedes. So basically, I don't know if you ever heard of the Jazzy Fat Nasties. Yeah, yeah. So that's Jay Swift's sister, and so oh crazy. So yeah, so like they were a whole different group. Um, like I said, Eric Bobo was there, and he had a group right. that was there. Um, Dang. So it was like a, it was a like when we did a showcase, it was quite like it was like a mixture of like music that people could sing because it was guys singing groups and it was rapping right. and it was just that. So yeah, I think those were like kind of the most fun. Cause it was just the crew, you know, and like we would just go out and we would all celebrate each other and be like, "Oh man, you did so good!" And just you know, we all would be happy yeah. for each other. Oh, that's beautiful, man. And what would you you guys would kind of offer each other insight into what what's working from uh, like? Yeah, just when you did that, that was really cool. It worked. It connected and like. Yeah. So so like basically, I mean, we would all share like, you know, one person would 
oh man, I need help with writing or I need help with this or, you know, we help the girl group, you know, get their dance routine together. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and they would help us, you know, get our harmonies right or whatever it was, you know? So it was like, we all shared, we all shared, um, some kind of introspect on on each other what you know what one was more talented at it kind of was a shared kind of thing yeah that community is you know it's it's such an important part of music is surrounding yourself with people who are lifting you up you know you you really want to surround yourself with a good community that's such an important part of this this game yeah so it was and that led i think like that kind of vibe all led a lot during our career because like you know, when Danny, like when Danny came out and Serge came out, like we were introduced yeah. to that whole, like, you know, you guys had your whole community in the Valley where, you know, so it was, yeah. you know, Jason and the guitar. And then, you know, yeah. so it was just like a, like a whole, like, oh shit, you guys have all these musicians here that, yeah. you know, so it was just like a whole, yeah. and, you know, I met, I met all the, I want to say, yeah, it was through Andy. Uh, Andy Record Jungle. So Andy, because oh, yeah, yeah. Andy stayed in the valley, and oh, okay. when Andy was producing, he used a lot of he used a lot of people like Danny and stuff to like play over his tracks and stuff like that. So that's kind of how that introduction right. went. So yeah, that was a blessing when I went out there. I was like, oh my god, like man, you guys got all these <laughs> hell of a funky musicians out here that I would I probably would have never right? met, you know. I believe me, I felt the same way when I met Danny and Steve K and Jason and all those guys. We had it's like, ooh, I got a bunch of dudes who all like the same kind of music I like, all play great. It's like it was beautiful. And just going to that apartment and just like I'm like, man, yeah. dude, you got the, the you you just transformed the whole apartment into a, know, into right? a studio. I was like, man, this is crazy. <laughs> And no one ever complains either. They've been Sergio's been running that place for like twenty years now. It's crazy. I was like, man, this is so cool. Like, yeah, I I would love to do that. Like right now, like just like convert a, an apartment building into a right. studio living <laughs> place. That that's that concept is so dope. Yeah, man, the clubhouse environment, man, it's beautiful. Good records get made that way. Yeah, for sure. Well, so uh, you linked up with Paul Stewart, who had worked with De La and Cypress Hill and House of Pain. Was he your first official manager? How did that go down? How did you find Paul? Did he find you? How did that work out? So at that time, there was a lot of different uh, music conferences. And I can't think of the name. So there was a music conference that was in San Francisco. Why can't I remember the name right now? It's so bad. So... um, me and Imani were actually dancing and kind of back up rapping for this this group called Gang of Textbooks, and oh, yeah. <laughs> and so you were telling Snoop about that. I, re- I yeah. So it. so yeah. we went up. So we went up to Frisco, and you know we had like we had our. I don't think we had our demo on tape, but we had our songs that we had, and yeah. um, after we got off stage. Uh, we saw Raskaz because we knew uh-huh. we knew Raskaz as Razor. You know, he was a dancer too. Okay. So we said, like, "Oh, what's up, Raz? You know, what's up?" He's like, "Oh man, what's going down? What you guys doing here?" Like, "Oh, you know, we came up here to perform, but at the same time, we trying to, you know, just trying to see what's up because we trying to break into this whole industry type thing." And he yeah. was like, "Oh man, you know what? If you guys got your stuff together." 
there's these people upstairs that you probably should meet. So we go upstairs, we enter the room, and Sheena Lester's there from Rat Pages. Paul Stewart's there. Uh, Albie's there from Tommy Boy. So it was like, I, I don't know if Dante was there, Dante Ross, but it was like all these, like, the young players in the game. Exactly. Yeah. Like the AR, the people that's out in the street that kind of do the connection. So right. they were like, oh man, you guys gotta, you know, what do you guys do? He's like, oh man, we got this song, blah, 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 blah. So he was like, okay, well, what's up, bus? So like, we just started doing Your Mama because that was the song that we knew. So I just remember just jumping on the bed, like getting like hella amped and hype. They were like, what are you, what are you doing? What, is, what kind of song is this? What's going on, you know? And yeah. so uh, Paul was there and Paul, you know, like I said, Paul came up to us afterwards. He was like, hey, man, if you guys got the demo tape, you give me the tape when we get back to L.A., I'm pretty yeah. sure that I could get you guys a deal. He's like, nah, you bullshit, you bullshit, you bullshit. Yeah. So we get back to L.A., uh, we come back and, and do the tape. We come back and do, so I want to say your mama was on there. Uh, I think Officer was on there. Yeah. And partial, partially passed me by because okay. Lip at that time was like, man, I, I want to do it, but I want to give six months to do my verse. That was his thing. Like, man, I want to I I take six months to, to really get my rhyming and get the verse right. So we yeah. kind of had partial. And so we gave Paul the demo. Yeah. And I say like three weeks later, we just started meeting all these different record labels you know so it was yeah. like Def Jam was coming out here and um, we was meeting people at that time I, I'm gonna say Paul was starting to work with Ice Cube so okay. he was doing uh, so when you Ice Cube was, had this thing called Street Knowledge and so yeah. Paul was like PMP promotions and so he was doing a he was doing a lot of promoting so like it the whole time it always seemed like we were promoting like you know what I'm saying so like I remember uh, Supercat was the record out at that time Ooh, and so yeah, we were man. like we were promoting Don Dada like that was like I remember yeah, just yeah. having so many 12 inches of Don Dada and that's oh, how we that record exactly so, so that's good. how we met Big Boy so Big Boy was also promoting at that time okay. so we were all promoting Supercat and uh, we would just hit, we just hit the clubs hell of a hard and you know while we were promoting we were also like shopping like paul was shopping the deal at the same time dang man yeah so just immersing yourselves in it that's the way that's the way dang so you guys got signed to uh by mike ross at delicious vinyl because of that demo and what was it i mean just uh for anyone who's never been there you get an offer from a label and you go in and have that meeting they're ready to sign you how old are you at that point you're like 18 no I, I would say i would say at that time like i said by the time we got there i i want to say I, I probably was like 20. okay and uh imani was younger yeah. lip was older than like a year or so older than me so yeah at that time it was like at that brink where it's like oh shit, i don't know if like like man, am I gonna be this homeless adult? <laughs> you know, because it was because it was like it was like 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 what am I gonna do? Like I'm 20 yeah. now. Like there's like the 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 time is starting to run. The the clock is ticking. You know, sure. So um, at 
yeah, we just had to we had the demo. We was doing the deal, but um, what sealed us? What sealed it for us? What delicious was doing the was they had the brand new heavies record that was coming out. So yeah. Mike kind of like was like, "Hey man, you know this is kind of you guys can be on this record to just start off your whole your whole career." We were like, "What, large professor?" uh yeah. cool g rap like we were just I looking know. at all the people that was on the record we was like okay delicious vinyls kind of like that sucked us into the whole thing so soul flower was cool actually shit. like our first record Release. that we was actually at a studio to record right mm. so how does that go where you're dealing with a label how did you go about getting an attorney to go in and look over contracts how did you know that you were signing the right stuff like how did how did all that work and how did it work out i can actually say we didn't know <laughs> okay <laughs> like, yeah. like 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 many like, don't yeah many don't. We, we didn't know like you know like i think at that time we were just so happy to do it i mean we had a sure. because reggie was there we had a little knowledge as far as oh, like uh, some stuff because he told us some of the things um oh, but it got it got it got a little weird though because like at, I won't say we had a fallout with Reggie, but it kind of we kind of avoided ourselves of being in a production deal, because it was just you know it was that thing like you in a production deal, then it's your label, then it's the it was like that fra that hell of a fractioned off kind of thing, and so yeah. we kind of avoided the production deal and just gave Reggie like points from the record kind of thing, because okay. we like. Yeah. Being in a production deal was more or less like he wanted to do a package kind of deal. So like Delicious wasn't just going to get us. They were going to get, you know, three or four more groups that was with SCU. And, oh, okay. and we felt like at, we thought that the music, like the singing groups were going to go ahead, like be the first ones to sign. But for whatever reason, yeah. we were actually the first ones that, that got signed. So gotcha. it was like. Um. Well, I don't know if we if the production deal thing is going to be the best advantage thing for us, and right. so, um, yeah. But the but the whole attorney thing. I mean, I think yeah. when you first start, it's like, you know, our attorney knew our accountant, accountant knew this, and and the right. manager knew this, and so, right. in one way, it's good because you get a lot of things done, but in another way, it's bad because it's like there's a lot of uh there's a lot of stuff that go across desks that you're not aware of until until right. you're in the mix so right. we it was good for us i mean when you think about the time that's how everybody's deal was so it wasn't like it wasn't like oh my deal is worse than anybody else's deal because everybody yeah. i, I want to say it, you probably was getting fucked at that time you know what i'm saying yeah. so yeah. it was more or less like you know, you do the standard eight album deal, you know, that was, that was just how it was. Yeah. And how did you ultimately get out of that contract? So, uh, by the second record, um, and a couple of manage a couple of management shifts, we met, yeah. uh, Trey was working with this guy named Richard Lewis. Hmm. And so Richard, kind of follow the Wu-Tang where we kind of was able to hold out because basically he saw how Wu-Tang 
you know, Raekwon had a had a deal over here, and Method sure. Man had a deal over here, and this person had a. So it was like if everybody had their separate deals, they yeah. could they could almost say like, hey, you know, I'm recording my album right now. I can't really necessarily do this as a group right, right now. Oh, gotcha. So yeah, yeah. so Richard kind of followed that format. He's like, man, if you guys are not happy with Delicious Vinyl, how we can play it is that you guys got different deals. And you really just don't have the time to kind of get together to do, you know, a far side record. So that gotcha. that kind of was part of the reason how we were able to get out the deal. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I know that that uh, that second record was uh, it was kind of where the group splintered off. And uh, I'm interested to know kind of how that played out, because I from what I've read, I understand that you and Imani kind of got left holding a bunch of debt. And then later on, there was an offer to reform with the Rock the Bells Festival that was hopefully going to pay you guys back. That was going to be part of the deal. But that kind of ended up working out a little bit differently than you'd hoped for. How did you guys traverse that situation? Because it sounds like it was a pretty complicated one. Um, I mean... Actually, it's, things are still evolving and ongoing, so it just never, <laughs> okay. it never, it, it 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 never, it never stops. And uh-huh. I think like how I can say is when you're younger, and you don't have kids, and you yeah. don't have a lot of responsibilities, you can sleep on somebody's couch, you can sleep on somebody's floor, you can wake up in the studio, you don't care. There's no, you don't, the, there's no time, there's no responsibility, there's no clock. But once you get older, you know, like you have responsibilities, you have like there's it's it's just different, you know, and and your music, the music that you do. It's more survival, it's more it's more like you got it like this is your survival now and how are you going to feed your family? So it's like the way that things wasn't as serious and you could play them like, oh, it's not very, you know, I'm not really worried about that. It, It becomes a different thing. Like, hey, this is my livelihood. You know, I got it's your retirement I, plan too. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like you, all that, all that comes into play. So, you know, when I look at it, in a, in a sense, it's like your moves become your moves are ha, has to be more calculated. It's not it's, yeah. you, it's not as as sporadic. You can't be as sporadic and say, hey, I'm just trying to do this just for this. You know, it's like yeah. when you you have to calculate. You have to you have to. You know, unfortunate because a lot of times, you know, maybe sporadic is the best, um, but you may not get the results financially that you're looking for if you're just doing things sporadic. Right, right. Have you ever run into like just getting into the in the zone of publishing and writing and copyrights and all that stuff? Have you had to deal with like when did you first start learning about how important that is to own your publishing and? getting that all squared away as you're entering into different situations. I think while well, like, during the time of like, you know, making the records Bizarre Ride and Lab Cabin and stuff like that, yeah. um, because I was I was getting my producer legs kinda going on and yeah. you know, you, you do your, your ghost production that you probably don't get credit for and just a lot of different right. things that you do and so 
you start kind of calculating things like, hey, why does that guy have a new car and we both worked on the same song together? You know what I'm right. saying? Right. And so, and exactly. so, and so, it's like, and so then that's that's when you start learning, like, oh, okay, there's a business, you know, like, okay, he made sure that he had this amount of points, he made sure that this was covered, you know, yeah. and so, I think, you know, in the beginning time, like the beginning, I think for anybody, you just gonna. I don't know. I haven't talked to one person that hasn't took that hit. Like when yeah. you first get into it, either if you're either writing or either, you know, production, you're going to take that hit. Like you're going to take yeah. that that one where it's like, damn, that got away from me. Like, you know, and it, it you know, hopefully it's not not your only and your biggest hit. But, yeah. you know, a lot of times for a lot of people, it is that way. And then you would hear like. I would say like man like a person that really broke down the music game because they were getting it i remember look looking at left eye from tlc and she really oh, yeah. she she broke it down like okay this is what happens this is because and i never knew that she was a writer for a lot of the, the songs and she was like hey this is what happened when you have a production this is what happens when you have the label this is what happens when you go on tour when you yeah. get this advance like she broke it down totally about uh certain things and so you know you just start seeing things and you know tip from 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 uh quest you just he he would talk a lot about publishing stuff and just how things would go so it was like you just started hearing people just talk a little bit more about hey just you know if you sample make sure you do this if this is whatever you know it, it i mean sampling was everything at that time and so it was like right make sure that the you know the record company whoever you're working for clears that sample like don't right. don't let them don't let them not clear that sample else you're going to pay yeah. for it later down the line and you're going to be responsible so it was yeah. just like i think that was a very learning thing as far as for hip hop back cuz it you had to kind of understand what rights you were going to give away, how many points right. you were going to get. So it was that kind of was a very introspective as far as learning the game in some kind of way. Yeah, well, it's, you know, that's a that's a good point to bring up. I mean, not as many people sample anymore just because it uh, takes so much of, you know, your percentage. But going in and giving people uh, their due, it's better to do it up front and get that out of the way because if you put it out and it's got their music in it that's copywritten, they call all the shots and they can tell you how much they want from it. And you might make way less than you would have if you'd worked it out at the beginning. Yeah. I know that when I hear about like people nowadays, because I think the money that you make on records is not, is not, not really right. necessarily as big as the, the fame and notoriety type thing, you know? So a lot of people now, they don't care. They just, they'll sample and you know if somebody comes and sue me later because they want the rights to the song well it's fine because i already got the notoriety like i'm i'm at a position right, right, right. where like i'm people already notice me i'm on my social media is at such a standing like right. you know and i'm not, i really didn't make that much money for the record anyway so it's not a, even a big deal you know um right. so people don't worry about it but at that time yeah it was like you know when you see like the Beastie Boys and stuff that they did and you just, you know, what like Paul's Boutique and like, like you know, and, yeah. and Daylight who like, you know, did their records and like, you just 
heard the nightmares that was going on when everybody came back to him like hey this is our song we didn't clear this you didn't do this you didn't do that and like you know people almost going to jail because just you know just crazy stuff like like i didn't know all this was going to come out of me sampling a record you know well that was that was a, a maiden voyage those records there nobody had any idea at that point i mean you know with Prince Paul and the Dust Brothers and everybody doing those, all that sampling, it's like they just didn't know it would have that much of a fallout, but it sure did. Yeah. Oh boy. You know, you can't, yeah, they were sampling Zeppelin and all kinds of different stuff, so. Yeah, and, and then you had like, they were sampling like five songs to one track, and it's like, oh my God, like, like, what type of clearance do they, like, like, do you even own any of this? Like, what, what part do right. you own with all these samples, you know? Exactly. Well, speaking of uh, records with uh, amazing samples on it, when Bizarre Ride to the Far Side came out and went gold, I'd just love to hear kind of your insider's view on what the hell that's like to deal with, man. Being pretty young, uh, I'm assuming kind of, you know, getting, getting money, getting some notoriety, but what is that like psychologically? What is that like socially, financially? to be caught up in such a whirlwind at such a young age, man? Well, I mean, actually, like, financially, like, it was a little, I mean, we weren't balling out of control or anything like that, you know? And then, like, honestly, like, it took two two to three years before Bizarre Ride went gold. So we Uh had, like, we had been touring so much. Like, we had been doing every alternative tour that you could name like Lollapaloozas, Snowcores, like all of these like yeah. I mean we were thrown into that what they call an alternative type and I, I used to hate it so much I'd be like why we gotta be alternative why can't we just be hip hop you know but right, they were like right. no no you gotta understand like if you if you do this you're, you're kind of entering a zone that, that people haven't really explored that like that so we were almost kind of treated like the beasties how beasties you know they were punk bands so they could go out and do all the skater shows and stuff like that so we were almost in that in that genre in that vein where we can go do a lot of palooza and like the skaters and the surfers and all those kind of people like this and then we could still go and do you know the gutter shows like do some stuff with like buckshot and all those kind of people so um yeah but like as far as like having super cash it never was a thing like having super cash it was more or less like we knew that we wasn't broke you know saying we knew we could go and get something to eat when we wanted we could have a car i mean but we still were like we were living together i mean both albums we we lived together so like you know we our expenses was kind of low, but second album, we, I mean, I, I had kids uh, during the second album and, and Imani as well had kids. So like I said, that, that started getting into that financial responsibility where it's like, okay, like this is a little serious now. Like we got kids and things is changing up a little. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of the second record, I was, I was just interested in, you know, it was kind of a, it seemed like a little bit more of a slow burn than the first record too, in that 
you know, people kind of had heard the first record, loved it. And the second record, you know, admittedly was was pretty different than the first record. Um, much like you were just saying the Beastie Boys. It's like everybody knew them from, you know, the kind of frat boy party anthems of their first record. And then they came out with Paul's Boutique and it kind of commercially flopped at first. But then, you know, it's obviously heralded as a, you know, a landmark genius record, much like Lab Cab in California is. And it's like, what is what is that like, first of all, where you're talking to a label about making your second record? They think you're going to be doing it with Q-Tip or, you know, bigger name producers, and you guys want to bring in this then unknown producer, Jay Dilla. What is that like talking to a label about trying to get, you know, what you want to do artistically versus we don't know who this young kid is that you want to produce? It was hell. What's that like? It was, it, was it, hell. Was, it was hell. Yeah, because... I bet it was. Because when we, you know, we were, like like you said, we were supposed to work with Q-Tip, we were supposed to work with DJ Premier, we were supposed to work with all these producers, Pete Rock, which, yeah. I mean, I wanted that. Like, that's what I felt like, man, we wanted that New York, because we felt like nobody in L.A. had crossed over into that New York vibe. Yeah. And, and we wanted to kind of bring that vibe back to LA like like oh man if we're a right. West Coast group and I think maybe Ice Cube was doing it with the bomb squad yeah. cuz he was doing the America's stuff with, most wanted yeah yeah he was doing the stuff with like uh Hank Shockley and stuff like that you know um yep. but we were kind of we felt like okay Ice Cube is that we're kind of dealing with the you know like I said the evil D's buckshot and the, and the diamond D's and it was, so it was a different thing. So we were thinking like, Oh man, we're going to bring this powerful record back. But once we, once we got out there, a lot of the people that we're getting music from, which I could say like, you know, at the time we being naive, you know, like I think New York people because hip hop had been, they had been in the hip hop. It was ingrained in them a little bit more than it was it out here in LA. So yeah. they kind of already knew like, hey man, you want to try to make a hit record, you know? Like you want that's that's the thing. So being that passed me by was somewhat, I guess you can say it was a hit record at the time when we went yeah. to New York. A lot of the tracks that we get was more melodic and everybody was trying to get that hit record like we want that we got to get these guys that next pass me by like that's gonna you know uh, that's their vein so everything that we got was that type of whatever and so yeah. um q-tip was at the studio q-tip at that time was doing mob deep's record he was mixing and mastering and he was doing a lot of stuff on uh mob deep's second record so yeah. he was like he played some music and he was like, man, I got to be honest. Um, you know, my mind is kind of somewhere else right now, but I met this guy while we was on Lollapalooza. This, you know, I met this kid that was in Detroit and I got this yeah. tape. So he's like, man, come to the house and I'll play this tape for you. So we go to his house, tape says John Doe, pops it right. in. <laughs> and it was like, 30 second 45 second clips no longer than that like it was just really sh sh short clips yeah. and we were just it was me me Trey and Imani that went to his house and we were like 
dude, what, if, what the fuck are we listening to right now? Like, this is like yeah. nobody else's music right now. Like, this is like, this is new. This is different, you know? And so we right. knew at that point, like, this is this is the sound we got to go back with. And so yeah. we recorded a few. Uh, uh, JD came down because he was in Detroit. He came down to uh, New York. And High Tech was around that time because High Tech, I want to say he was doing Talib. So they were kind of, High Tech was in Ohio or Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland, I think he was coming down. And so they both came down at the same time. So it was like, it was like, damn, this is this, this new Midwest kind of like (laughs) crazy. So like when we came back, Delicious was like, what the fuck is this? Like, 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 oh, who's this guy you working with? Like, who is he? Like, you know, like, yeah. what does this sound like? This is not what we sent you guys to go get. And yeah. I just remember I was just, man, I would just argue with Mike all the time. Like, dude, you got to understand this is going to be the next. I'm telling you, it's going to be the next wave. And, and even saying things like, I mean, you, you could say like, you know, Q-Tip recommended this guy to us and that didn't carry any weight whatsoever. No, because they felt like, I mean, it, it took me a long time to understand like, okay, and that's what I'm saying. It's the business, you know, like I wasn't thinking business. I wasn't thinking hit records. I wasn't thinking right. that side. They were like, they were thinking like, hey man, how are we going to promote this? Like if you... It's an automatic if you have a tip. It's an automatic if you have a Pete Rock. It's an automatic right. if you have, like, we're going to have to spend more marketing money, more dollars to try to market this unknown kind of guy. Like, like now it's just rest upon you guys making a, a dope track to make this work, you know? Right, right. And I, it took me years, 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 years outside of the situation to understand it. But yeah, like... I remember arguing with Mike about drop, like fiercely, like, dude, like this is gonna, I'm telling you, this is gonna be at the club. This is gonna be a song that people's gonna do it. And it yeah. it didn't cross over to him until uh, we met with Spike Jones and Spike Jones was like, man, I have an idea for the video. And so right. that kind of intertwined us more with Beastie Boys a little, cause uh, you know, we met with Mike D. He was doing um, Grand Royal. Grand Royal, and, yeah. And that was the name of their label as well. So yep. Spike was the the photographer for Grand Royal. And when we went to Mike D's house to do an interview, Spike was like, oh, man, I want to do a video for that. We were playing our music while we were doing the interview. And he was like, man, I want to do a video for that song. Oh, and um, well, he had some videos, but he had just did Sabotage. And we were like, oh, shit. Like, like man, this is like Beastie's going to actually be in our video. And so I think that's when uh, Delicious Vinyl was like, okay. They're on, we, we wasn't <laughs> okay, seeing it. Yeah, we wasn't so seeing that it. Was the, yeah. Yeah, that was it. But now that the Beastie Boys are going to be in it, are, are going to be in the video, it's okay. We, we understand it finally. Yeah, because the commercial appeal. And and you know, like I said, like I didn't understand. Looking back at it, being that Matt Dyke was part of the Dust Brothers, it was yeah. kind of like a it was kind of like a full circle thing that was going on. Because Matt Dyke was like the first person. He was like the that was the very first studio we went to, and I just remember it's like at that time Matt was he's he's pretty in bad shape. Like you know, like the drug thing was wow. kind of like you know, and so um. But it kind of was that full circle of, of 
the Paul's boutique and then we come back around and now the beasties want to be involved with our situation. So it's like, Oh shit, this right. is a, this is a no brainer. Right. You know, the balance of the artistic versus the financial is a difficult one. But I mean, I mean, like I said, like looking back at it now, I can understand yeah. what it was, but right. it kind of disheartened me in a way because I was just like, man, I, why am I arguing to do music? And I felt like that was, I felt like it was a waste of time. Just like always having these arguments. I mean, I understand like you want to get the best, you know, maybe you're doing it because you want to get the best product out there. But there, but as we got older, as things started, you know, the business got a little bit more intense. It was, it was more arguments and less more, music creation and taking that risk that chance you know yeah yeah right you mentioned matt dyke and and drug issues and that's just obviously a you know it's been a prevalent thing in the music business forever and i know uh jay swift had issues too i've, I've read and uh you know like we all have issues with with people who uh, get involved in some kind of chemical dependency is how do you navigate those waters when you're in a relationship with someone uh, creatively and, uh, you know, business-wise? How have you dealt with that in the past, Brown? What's your... Uh, well, I just know, like, as far as, like, our experience with Jay Swift, we really didn't experience it too much. Uh, but I, I say, like, after Bizarre Ride, Jay Swift, I mean, he was two or three years younger than us. So he yeah. was really young and, like, Puffy was coming up to Jay Swift, wanted to do Mary J. Blige records and all that kind of Dang. stuff. And so, like, yeah. he just got a lot fast. Like, he had a lot fast. And so, um, he signed a deal, uh, Fat House Records, with uh, Tommy Boy. And I remember, like, he went from, after working with us, they got this house in, like, Malibu or something. Like, something crazy. Like, you know? Like, so it was like... <laughs> okay they were just living the life, you know what I'm saying? So you're young, you never thought that was going to happen before. And, right. you know, you're in a studio and I, you know, experimentation, I just think, you know, you, but right. if you don't have nobody there to kind of like, Hey man, you kind of taking it too far. Like, you know, you right. don't have that person that's there. I think like it's easy for you to get, cause you know, that's just there. Like, like, like the, like, yeah. that's just something that that's there all the time. And like, you know, people sure. are going to come with it and be like, Hey man, what you doing? You know, Oh man, I ain't doing shit. Oh man, let's, let's, let's yeah. try this. Let's, let's try this. And then you just keep, exp- you know, the experimentation just keeps going further and further and further. Right. I mean, you were talking earlier just about having mentors around you that are kind of helping you. And, uh, you know, at the beginning that was so much, uh, Reggie for you guys, but did he did he continue to be someone who might have stepped in in that way? Just like, did he ever talk about chemical dependency or any oh, yeah, of addiction? For, for sure, for sure. Reggie, you know, because he was in the seventies, where like, man, cocaine was right. like, like Coca Cola. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, like, right, it absolutely. Wasn't, it was it wasn't nothing bad, you know. Yeah. So uh, he definitely would talk about it, and you know. I was always a person. I like to watch a lot of documentaries and I just remember like, you know, looking at John Coltrane and Miles Davis and a lot of people, even Jimi Hendrix, like my dad was a Hendrix fan. So 
Same. I remember. I remember my dad would always be like, "Yeah, Jimi Hendrix would, you know, when you saw him with the bandana, like he had like six tabs of acid in his bandana, <laughs> right. and when he sweats, the acid goes starts going in his pores and stuff like that." So you just hear about like all these wild, crazy stories that was going on, yeah. and then yeah. you know you hear about Coltrane, and you hear and Miles Davis, and you hear about them saying like. Man, I you know you have you have to do heroin. You know, what I'm saying you'll never know the right. you never be the coolest man alive if you're not doing heroin. So it's, it's like right. you hear these stories of these great people doing stuff, and I think you just want to experience it because it's like you like man, I wanna I wanna break I wanna break out of this this thing and be like these great musicians. And right. they they're saying that this made them think about music or look at music different. So you're like you're like on that thing of like, I want to do it. I want to do it. But sure. Reggie, Reggie kind of told us the, the like, Oh, you could do it. You could probably be the greatest person for like a year, but that, that next two or next three afterwards, like, can you, can you rescue yourself? And can you hang? It's like everybody's constitution is different. You know, it's like what might work and be passable for someone just because of their upbringing or whatever their genes or, DNA can handle certain things and other people it'll freaking ruin their life. So I feel like just knowing yourself and having people around you that know you really well is such an important thing. Yeah. Cause I look, I look at, I look at you balanced. I look at George Clinton, like he's an alien, you know what I'm saying? Cause I like, man, from all the drugs that I've heard, you know, everybody knows like crack cocaine was very prevalent and all that kind of stuff. And so when I see George Clinton, I'm like, how is this man alive? And like, like <laughs> Prince, uh, like a Prince or know, right? these other people are just not around no more. Like, like, how does yeah. this man be do it since the sixties? Like, like hard, exactly. hardcore, you know? So like you said, but those like, people are few and far between. I mean, the George Clintons and the Keith Richards is there's only so many of those dudes that are around these days. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it takes a rare constitution to hold up to all that, man. That's crazy. Yeah, for sure. So it's just like, like I said, like you, I look at, I look at, I like, man, this guy has to be an alien. Like, you know, like there's right. no way that he could do all this stuff <laughs> and still survive. You know, and like you said, Keith Richards, like you look at him, he, he, and it's so funny because like you could just tell when you see him laugh or you see them talk, like you're like, yeah, that's years and years of like perfecting that that magic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely man absolutely so crazy well i saw some interview i was looking at this morning where you were talking about preparation practice professionalism and patience and i thought that was so beautiful because all the the you know the times i've been uh, fortunate enough to work with you you're always like that you come in you've got stuff written you're there on time you're prepared and it's always just so easy to work with you. You come with so many creative ideas. And uh, I feel like that's something that really should be passed on to artists is like when you're coming into a situation, be over prepared, be there on time, do your best job, because that's what's going to get people to want to keep hiring you. And I just yeah, interested. For, 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 for me, like I always, I mean, I've had, a, I've always had a job, you know, so I think yeah. I think that played into it, like, I work for Domino's. I work for Taco Bell. Work for the bank. Right. I work. I always had a job, so you know you got to be on You're time. You're held like, accountable. Yeah, you, yeah. And so I think that 
a lot of a lot of people who come into music sometimes they may not have a job so like they don't like right. that 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 background of our, our self-check is not in there i mean some people have yeah. depending on like if they've been shitted on for a lot of years then they feel like oh i need i'm, I'm gonna start shitting on people because i was shitting up for for so long you know right 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 but for for me being in a studio i mean you being a producer being in a studio you know like once you enter those big studio time is money and so yeah, right. the the biggest thing is okay how many concepts can we get to cuz maybe the first one won't work you know maybe 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 it's going to take 3 or 4 times so as if you're like like you said over prepared then yeah you could kind of like okay that kind that concept didn't work let's go ahead and right. jump into this next concept because maybe we can try it like this like you you get more right. more chances to make it right but if you're not prepared if you kind of don't have that mindset then you could spend eight hours in the studio bullshitting and like man what what the where the fuck the time go and like you know yeah. like then all of a sudden your budget like you 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 know like all that starts playing a part and. and the anger starts building up because it's like, man, we're wasting time. And then there's a lot of bickering going sure. back and forth. So it's like, if you kind of ahead of the curve, you can kind of work through different ideas to find out which one works the best. Right. Well, I just know, uh, I mean, that one time we did that thing for Matt Fife at the village where we were doing that, it was like a e-network or something. That's yeah. probably that British group. You guys came in so overprepared. You had all the executives laughing. Like it was just from working with you guys before, it was just like, I know these guys are gonna do a great job. It's always, the vibe is always nice. You and Amani are always overprepared and it's just such a beautiful thing to watch because everybody feels good. Their money's getting spent in a way that they know they're gonna have something really cool to use. And then at the same time, like when you hear a person like Snoop, that's why like yeah. Snoop is still you know, he's still prevalent because he knows like, even though I have an idea, I need to follow the producer's direction. And so it's like, right. you gotta, you gotta understand like, okay, I've been on the side where I've been the producer, I've been on the side where I've been the artist. And so I know what works for me is having that artist that kind of listen and you say, hey, can you try this? Can you do this? Can you, can you, can we, can we take this out? Can we see how this right. fits, you know? that helps because now it's like sometimes it's difficult to take the guidance and so sometimes you just got to let it go and like you know what i know how i wrote the rhyme and how i wanted to go but maybe this producer what their vision is could be right so let me just try it how they want to do it you know and, and yeah. a lot of times that's hard for people to do because they feel like this is my baby and i'm giving birth to this and you're not going to tell me how to dress my baby you know like right, 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 i'm not right. trying to tell you how to, i'm just trying to tell you like okay you know it could be raining where we're going you know just put put a raincoat on your kid you know what i'm saying so it's like right you know that brings up your uh, your good fortune in working with damon albarn and then the gorillas and how did that relationship go when you first jumped into it how does he like to work how did you find yourself kind of bending uh, to what he wanted and uh, generally how did that situation play out? So I actually, it's weird because the way that I was brought in, I was brought in through Danger Mouse. I didn't actually oh, meet, okay. I didn't actually meet Damon until like, till we went to the to London and 
it's something about, I don't know if, I, I want to say the song that I did kind of secured uh, Danger Mouse's uh, production with doing that album because I think I, yeah. I think there was a lot of producers they were trying to work with at the time and yeah. uh, once Danger Mouse presented that record they were like okay yeah we want you to be the producer on this record so gotcha. we me and Imani had did a track with uh, Danger Mouse previous previously and mm -hmm. He lived up in the Mount Washington area and he was just like, oh, oh man, yeah. So he had like a whole little setup and he was like, oh man, you should come to the house. I'm trying this demo. Cause when I did it, I didn't even know it was for gorillas at all. I had no idea. He was just like, man, I'm doing this demo. Can you come over and, and record this? And I was like, okay, cool. You know? And I heard the track. I can honestly, I always say like, I wasn't a big fan of the track, but I was like, <laughs> I, I always, been, I'm, my thing is like, stepping out of the comfort zone sometimes especially like i said when you dealing with the producers maybe they see your voice fitting with something that you obviously don't see so sure, i heard this sure. i heard i heard it i was just like oh man what is this what is this and then he's like i just you know just want you to try some stuff and so the same way as we were talking like danger mouse was like oh man you know the same as you like when we worked together he was just like man this is a little wordy you know man let's let's take this sentence out try this try that um yeah and you know i recorded the song and then he's like oh man the song made it for this for this group called gorillas and i was like oh shit like you know like at that time though i didn't know a lot of their records but i knew you know i knew the dale right. track with him working but i had in my mind i had no idea how big they were until i went to uk and then oh this guy you know damon he was with this group called blur a big big yeah. you know band and then it start all the pieces and all the people that was working on the album started coming together and i can say like being involved with that definitely shit that's it's landmark it's landmark for me because yeah. the all the people that i met i mean i mean i became very good friends with like ike turner uh you know like Crazy. nina cherry was there um yeah. Did you get to hang with Mick and Paul from the Clash too? Man, all the time. Like, like, oh, like me, 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 Greg and Mick was like, we were like smoking partners. We all like <laughs> Mick would come knock on the door. What's up, man? Like, and it was just, uh, it's so crazy because it was like, you know how you like, you try not to be like a groupie, but I just was like, I, I could, there was no way that I couldn't <laughs> tell him that dude, Rock the Casbah was like my shit, dude. Like, I yeah, like, yeah. like, like that whole record i would listen to like that so that clash record so much you know and yeah. so it then it just kept going on because it's, it's the tours kept going on you know every time they did something you would meet somebody new so like the next record uh bobby womack was out so like me and right. like so like me and bobby womack was like real tight like you know like like and so Beautiful. tony allen was there and so same thing like tony was tight with tony allen so it's like then the next then the next record lou reed comes and so oh, like, really i didn't know he worked with him yeah so that. like lou reed was there and then um what's the brothers i can't think of their name the gallagher brothers uh the ones that oh um, yeah noel and liam gallagher no they were there all the time yeah. so it was like yeah. there's no way on this planet that i would have met all these people i felt and like all from trying something that you weren't sure about at the beginning trying some something new it's crazy.
Yeah. Once you branch out and get out of your own head and just try some stuff and start trusting other people to, you know, that they might have a plan for you, it's crazy how the doors can open. That's such a beautiful story, Brown. Thanks for sharing that, man. Yeah. So it was it was incredible. I've got I got to do some pretty big shows with Daylaw, but I can't believe they're even as huge as the ones you guys did with Gorillas at like O2 and, and uh, Glastonbury and stuff. For our last question, what is the difference between preparing for a huge show like that and preparing for a club show like how does it how do you do you go about them any differently um yeah i think i think i think uh i had to break it down because like when we were dancing yeah tony basil was always when you when you're dancing in the club okay you're just in a circle and you know you're kind of in your own zone but when you're dancing on stage your presence has to be bigger than you. So she was always like, you know, you have to wave your arms, like like you, you do a lot of arm movement, you do a lot of things to make yourself, your presence bigger. And so right. when you're at a club, you can, you know, it's like, you could be Prince computer blue and just be weird, you know, like, like you don't <laughs> have to, you, you don't have to do it. But when you on when you were doing these book festivals and stuff like that, it's like okay, I gotta, I my presence has to be that much larger, you know. Doing a far side stuff, you know, I can just like I said, I can do weird stuff. I can just like be in my zone and be be myself. But like, sure. going out on Coachella with 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 gorillas, it's like okay, now you're in front of a hundred thousand people and like the focus is on you. So it's like right. That that three minutes or four minutes that you're on stage with that song, yeah, it almost feels like an hour. Like like the right. the the energy that it's taking, like the energy that yeah. it takes, it, it you you feel like oh my god, like I I gotta put this this super amount of energy into this into this thing that's going down. Sure. So yeah, so I think I think like that's a difference with from from club like to. Like when you're doing Glastonbury or something like that, yeah, that energy that you burn that you have to give because these you're doing these huge stages at the same time. So it's like, oh, if I'm doing one like this little small stage, I you know I could stand in one area. But when you're doing like these huge stages, it's like running from one end to the next end is like sixty feet or thirty feet. And you're like, right. oh, man, I didn't <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Try to channel your inner Mick Jagger after doing oh, that. Oh, man, I've, I've done it so many times where, like, the first two songs, <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. I got a whole, we got a whole nother hour to go. I, what did I just Ooh. do? I done burnt myself out. You know? <laughs> totally, man. For so sure. what is it, just from a technical standpoint, the first time you did something big like that with them, what kind of how does that work like or is greg getting an email from them how do you work out all the details of getting brought on a big tour like that and how does it how does it kind of go just like what do what do people expect when they you know get into a situation like that man all i can say is that that's when i just like man rock and roll is different like this like this okay. whole rock thing is just like when we came out to the states yeah and they were they were doing the tour. There were six tour buses. Dang, yeah. And like six semis for right, the, the for gear. the stuff. Yeah. So it was like 
it was like 70 people that was like during this during this tour because he had there was an orchestra that was from Jordan uh no from Syria so there was this like a whole orchestra section yeah. there was like six background singers there was myself there was Dela there was Nina Cherry there was yeah. Mick Paul right uh so it was like like Something that, yeah, something that I can't like, you know, hip hop. I don't, I'm not used, you don't do nothing like that, you know. Maybe you're in a van, you know what I'm saying? Like a more more and more, you know, tour bus. Like that's like, that's like living large once you be in a tour bus. Like you're in a van driving from Cincinnati to Detroit or something like that, you know? Like, (laughs) totally. So, um, it's just a, it was just a different thing. But, what I saw was Damon was like, I want this sound. I just know like they rehearsed yeah, every day. Like, right. it, like he made sure that the band rehearsed for every show. Yeah. That morning, oh, there really? was a bus that go out to go rehearse the show yeah. that for that night. Dang. And, and that was all the time like that. I, I, I want to say maybe, maybe one time through the 10 year span, I saw them not practice. Right. But they were always rehearsing. Damon made sure everybody rehearsed every time. No matter how good it was, he he'll yeah. come back that next day and be like, Man, this was flat, this was fucked up. Right. This is crazy. No, we gotta make sure this is right. And he was there. Like it wasn't like, you know, like a lot of times right. like maybe the major <laughs> artist is not there. Right. Like right. he's there, like like, no, we gotta get this right, you know? Yeah. Like I just remember musicians and everybody would be pissed off because we'd be somewhere like you know, be Italy or somewhere and everybody wanted to go like have some fun. He's like, no, fuck that. We we gotta rehearse. Like and so like yeah. yeah, a lot of times you miss a lot of sightseeing because he was rehearsing, you know. That's what it takes though. That's crazy. I have some friends who were in a big band and they'd the singer would always call rehearsals on like the one day off and then not show up. <laughs> yeah. Dang, at least Damon showed up and he was like, We're doing this together, we're gonna make this incredible and it was. Yeah, because we didn't have to be there. Like, you know, we got one or two songs, so it wasn't necessarily required yeah. to be there. But right. I would just go because I was like, man, if everybody else is practicing, I yeah. want to make sure that I'm, you know, I want to see what the stage setting is. I kind of want to just, you know, I go to rehearsal sometimes if if I wasn't, like, recording in my room or doing something like that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he was there every time. He was there well, every Well, you got to be of that friend. I was just listening to Sean Penn get interviewed, and he was talking about what it was like being a director finally and he had worked with some actors that were kind of like whatever not wanting like after work they'd be done and people wanted to go home and he's like let's go run these lines again i think we can improve them and people were like eh you know and he was like it broke his heart he's like we're here doing this fucking amazing thing that very few people get to do like let's go make it amazing you know like this is what it takes and People like that get, you know, get to where they are because of that hard work ethic, man. And that's often overlooked. You know, you, you see social media and you see partying and everything, but it's like the people that really stay in it for the long haul are the people who put in all that work, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and don't get me wrong. Like definitely, definitely, uh, work hard, play hard type right, situation. Right, right, absolutely. You know what I'm well, so you were just saying, like, even when they were rehearsing, you'd go. And it's like, you want to go because everybody's there hanging out, but you also want to, like, create a good vibe. It's like, we're all in this together. We're creating something amazing. 
Exactly. And so, you know, they'd be like, well, you know, artists could come if you wanted to. And then, you know, like I would look at Damon, I could tell this eye like, yeah, you should, you should come just even for a second, just come just, you know, and so, you know, I just go like, man, what the fuck? I'll, I'll go like, you know what I'm saying? If that's going to help everybody kind of get into the zone and kind of understand what we all, all our parts of what's going on. So when you're talking about all those semis that are coming along too, and that's a part a lot of people don't talk about too, is like, know your bus driver, know the guy who's setting up the rigging, like make friends with people because these are the people who make your day easier, you know, and they're busting their asses way harder than a lot of the performers are most of the time, you know? Yeah. So like, I mean, of course, there was like a major catering and all that kind of stuff. So that's where everybody, you know, during those times where everybody got to, you get to shake hands. Oh, man, I see you so many times, you know, yeah. and you just sit down and talk to different people. And you, right. it's interesting because, you know, like, rest in peace, the tour manager, Craig Duffy, he just he just recently had a car accident, oh. like, the other day and passed. But oh, man. Craig, like, Craig. Craig used to, you know, he managed Duran Duran. He wanted, he was like, he's like, He's with Damon since Blur. He did Duran Duran. He did Sade. He did like wow. Jamiroquai. He did all these like, like, so just talking to somebody like that, that was the blessing more or less like of everything was like hearing these stories, like the Bobby Womack stories and the Ike Turner stories. Like, right. like I, I can't, I can't even say like that the hearing those stories firsthand from those people was like incredible you know absolutely man just to be in the presence of people who've been doing this thing that we love so much for decades longer than we have it's amazing yeah oh man and bobby definitely was like another person rest in peace he was just like yeah. i love performing but he's like you know songwriting is everything yeah. He's like, man, I can't even tell you, like, songwriting saved me. He was like, you know, my first deal was actually when he did 125th Street, that was, yeah. like, under United Artists. So, like, right. he was working with a lot of movie stuff. He's like, that was more money than I could ever imagine at that time. Because <laughs> right, he's like, right, right. I'm, I'm doing, you know, writing songs for movies. And he's like, that was a, a whole different game when I started doing that. Right. Residuals. Yeah, so he was he was just breaking down a lot of stuff, and I think that was another thing of like greatness with 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 Damon and working with that whole thing because he he wanted to surround himself with great people as well, you know, right. and and so I think like he realized like surrounding myself with these people is only and if I listen and learn, it's only going to make me greater in my craft. That's the, that is, you know, uh, a huge talking point and surrounding yourself with people that are better than you and will up your game is like, I mean, believe me, I'm, I'm never going to be Wes Montgomery on guitar, you know, but I surround myself with musicians that play songs really great and have good ears and are sensitive people. And it's like, it makes me sound better, you know? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, no when you hear those, but when you hear those stories, like, it's like, I know Wes Montgomery didn't really start playing until, like, I think his late 30s or something like oh, that. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, he was, he was an old guy. Like, he was, a, he was, uh, he was old. Uh, Bill Withers. Oh, Bill Withers. Bill yeah. Withers was like, like, I want to say he was like in his late 30s or 40s right. when right, he, right, right. when he did it. So, like, they didn't find out their, their craft until later in line. And yeah. so, they're coming into music being that they had jobs and they just had a different thought pattern to to everything 
that's such an interesting thing to me too. That whole thing of like, is it better to wait a while like Bill Withers did and kind of have your success later after you've had some life experience versus like having all this crazy success thrown at you when you're still kind of in your formative years, you know? Yeah. I crazy, mean, I, I, I think you got to know yourself basically. Yeah. I, yeah. Cause you know, you, you figure like there's somebody like Prince, but like everybody's not a Prince, you know, but right. you had this, this guy who's, I mean, what Prince started with 16, 17, something like, like real early. And then yeah. was great until, till his last day, <laughs> till his yeah. last day, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you really can't say, but I think you could be definitely right. Like depending on your mentality, like, you know, yeah. it not, you not getting everything you want so fast at a young age, you kind of yeah. could decipher what's right and what's wrong. Well, I think that's such an interesting thing, like especially with social media now. So many of the kids are looking at like, this is what it looks like to be successful. And then kind of holding yourself up and comparing yourself to those other people, you know? Yeah, I mean, but I learn, I learn, I learn a lot of stuff from the new kids now with the whole social media thing. That's one thing that I learned from from Dilla was like breaking the rules, mm. and so he was definitely a a person that made me think just production wise and just like break because you know Dilla would sample off of like a cassette tape or. Right he'll sample off a, you know, sample like a brand new record. Like I remember like some records was like, maybe like a year or two years old and he would sample from that record. Right. So he had no, there there was no rules that he felt for, to making music. And right. I, I admired that because I think when, you know, when we were making music, it was always this thing like, Oh, you got a sample from a record and it has to be a break yeah. beat and you got to take this beat. You got to do this and you got to do that. And you, he didn't, he didn't fall under none of that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And so I think the kids now are, are more rule breaking than that. Like that, that type of analogy kind of goes into the kids. Like, I don't think kids look at, I think in our days, like, I don't want to be that one hit wonder. But I, I, I think kids don't even care these days. Like, like, man, if I just make that one hit, if I just did something that went viral, right? I'm good. Like, 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 you know, like I, I'm eating. I, I'm, I made something that I never. And so, in a, in a way, it's kind of refreshing because it's like, hey, you know what? You kind of acknowledge that you did do something great, whether as you take it as like you know what, I did this one song and that was my only song I, I did, you know, like the yeah. Millie Vanilli kind of thing. Like, like, oh, I did right. this and I never was able to capture that moment again. I think right. kids don't really look at it like that. They're like, hey man, you know, I I, I made something that was great. You Living know? for and, the moment. Yeah. 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 That's true. That's a good yeah. way to look at it. That's a yeah. Good so way I, I, I kind of I like take all those things into perspective of like, hey, you know, this is, and then, you know, it's, it's the same way. It's like, you know, driving a car or anything. Like, it, we're in the future now. So having the old ways of doing some stuff sometimes is like, I mean, I, and I respect it. Like, let's say like an Adrian Young, he's very, Adrian Young, I, I can't ever see him leaving an analog world. Like, that's his, like, that's his thing is like, I'll never do anything digital. You know what I'm right. saying? And I can, I, I can totally understand that because he's trying to capture a certain sound and yeah. he wants his music to represent a certain way. 
Me, I just I'm all across the board. I'm like, man, I I want to make I want to make something that's I want to make something that's good. I don't care if I don't care if it started on a on a laptop. I don't care if it started on an eight track. I don't yeah. care if it if it was organic and started with you know a guitar yeah. and some chopsticks. Like man, what you know? Same I, I just, man. I'm surrounded by analog <laughs> gear in here and have been for the last twenty years. But like. I'm the first to admit, like, if I get something, if I just get a great song and it's recorded on digital, I could care less. Like, if it sounds good, I don't care how it was recorded. Yeah. If it's a good song and the vibe is good and the singer is good or the MC is good. It doesn't matter how you record it to me. Yeah. But I, but I, like I said, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I just mentioned Adrian because I just felt like, I just know that's, that's where he, sure. pl where he plays with. But as far mm -hmm. as for me, I, I, I don't. You know, like I said, coming, watching Jay Diller work and, and just being in the studio, I, I realized that breaking that traditional uh, quote unquote rule book of what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do your song. Yeah, I think I think your most for me is like. What's going to. Make that moment count. You know, right. make make the best song that you can kick. No, don't don't kind of hold yourself to that. It should be like this or should be like that. I agree. I agree, man. Well, um, the music business can definitely be discouraging and trusting collaborators that don't turn out to be trustworthy it can get us down. How do you keep yourself focused, productive and positive and moving forward? What's your secret? Um, I think you just got to stay learning and understand that people like right now, I'm into the streaming thing, like we're doing now and the whole thing. And I found myself because people's like, well, how's this playing to music? And a lot of people doesn't understand it. And I'm like, I don't look at music as music. I look at like art as art. Yeah. You know, I, I look, I look at it like it's, it's sometimes having sometimes talking to certain people and and gaining an understanding helps with songwriting it gives you ideas it helps Absolutely. with a lot it helps with a lot of different things right. so i for for me if i step into a studio with somebody who's much younger than me i feel like i'm gonna play a novice because maybe maybe they're approaching something a way that i would never approach something before Right. And I think that kind of helps me understand. It kind of keeps me in the in the mode. And that's what everything like, you know, I mean, I know you're you're an independent guy like myself. So, you know, when it comes down to the record covers, when it comes down to the writing, when it comes like all of that plays a part like that yeah. to me, like none of it. I mean, of course, music is the foundation and the base, yeah. but at the same time, it's like like all these things play a part in the creation it's all and, the same thing you're just trying to express the beauty of human spirit and how beautiful we can make this world you know because yeah there's lots of things to get you down but when you're when you're talking to people that are doing cool creative stuff and you're creating cool creative stuff it's uh it just makes the world more beautiful man yeah so so right now i, I consider myself reverse engineering hmm. the music business because I've always approached it music and then trying to get the music to the people. Yeah. And now 
I consider myself with you like okay we're in this whole streaming age the the touring kind of stopped for last year and so I'm like you know what I want to learn I want to build the people around me I want to talk to the radio people I want to deal with the DJs I want to I want to step into their world and and get to know these people and go back and forth with them so that once I get the music that part is there already not not necessarily I'm trying to build the relationships because I got this record now so it's like now so I'll build the relationships with the DJ oh man you do this you do this here you do this here hey let's stream let's do this let's kind of like get our get our relationship together in that sense and then once I get the music it's almost a no-brainer that right. now now there's this court this this co-op and and the music can spread further so exactly. I, so i yeah i i that's where i'm at now that's why i i feel like i, I want to try something different because i i've i've done it in the way of doing the record and trying to get out there and it's expensive and it's like one of, one of the things is that if you don't keep putting money down yeah your the momentum of the record stops but right. I think I think be, right. I think that happens because it comes from a or uh, a unorganic collaboration where you really don't you don't know the DJs you don't know the certain things and so being that you're you're meeting them is strictly based on you want them to play your music there is no relationship there's no right. there's there's nothing so if I I figure if I play it different if I get with the DJs first and we build this this network and and we have this relationship yeah. you'll want to play my record just because right. we're 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 friends and we're home. Well cuz they're catching your vibe and and it's like that's a good dude. We know his music's good, but he's also a good human being. And it just it puts it on a personal level, you know. That's it's, it's it's one of the things that I understand about social media too is like you're not just selling music, you're selling like your lifestyle and how you are as a person. Yeah, and and then and then you know meeting meeting these, you know meeting them prior to you delivering your music, you yeah. kind of see what they're into. Like, oh, you know what this guy really is like. He likes house music and dance music. And I never yeah. thought about incorporating that type of style into my music or this guy likes this. And so like you start becoming a little bit more ex experimental in what you're doing because you want to you want to do something that they kind of enjoy and you enjoy at the same time. Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Such a key point. Keeping up relationships, you know, forming relationships in the music business is. I'd say like 80% of it, you know, for sure, for sure, because you've got, you've got your talent, you've got your work ethic and all that stuff is very important. But keeping up relationships is is the number one, I think. Yeah, because I, the, the record industry, if anybody knows the record industry is like being in that 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 rotating glass front door. And a person, a person could be leaving, leaving office as a as a as a gopher one day and the next yep. time you see them they're like head of a and r or they're like a owner of a label and you're like shit like what's up man like what are you doing oh man i got my own label i'm doing this now right. and it's like it's so like you 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 have to always pay attention because like sometimes 
being that you feel a certain way or your your emotions or whatever you're going through, you can quickly almost shit on somebody because right. you, you just don't pay attention to them or you're like, oh man, that guy is just whatever. And then the next time you see him, like, I remember you from somewhere. That, and that person yeah. walk up to you like, yeah, you shitted on me when we was at the, oh, like, oh, my <laughs> exactly. God, you know? So it's like exactly. you got to you gotta keep yourself in check and just yeah. kind of Always understand. treat everyone with respect, man. There's that, there's that famous Alan Toussaint song, the same people you misuse on your way up, you're going to meet up on your way down. Yeah, yeah. You got to treat everyone good because who knows? The tables flip quickly. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Oh, so, well, yo, thank you so much for all your. We talked. We almost two hours here, man. I'm so grateful. Nah, thanks, thank Dan. You. I hope you got enough for the first one. I hope it works out and sets it off oh, right. Oh man, I'm so lucky to have you as my first guest, Brown. Thank no, you, I, I appreciate it, Dan, and much success to your to your whole thing. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Conduit. The Conduit is brought to you by Cruess Studio and danubeproductions.com. We'd like to dedicate this episode to the memory of Craig Duffy, tour manager extraordinaire and friend to many. Also many thanks to Greg Campbell, Imani, the folks at Squadcast, Polymash, Captivate, We Edit Podcasts, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Sure, and Avid. Extra special thanks to my brothers from other mothers, Scott Power, Bill Coulter, and Alex Desert. And last but not least, go check out Soul Picnic, my hand-picked music playlists on notrealart.com. Till next time, this is Dan Ubik, signing off. <laughs>